inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. And we're two siblings who happen to be blind. Outlook. On Radio Western. Hello and welcome to another episode of Outlook. It's another home edition this week as this is airing on Family Day, which is a holiday here in Ontario. So the studio is closed. Recording this one a few days in advance on February the 16th, 2023. And I'm here in my apartment in London. And I have Carrie zooming in from Woodstock, Ontario. How are you doing today, Carrie? Happy family day to you. Yes, we are family as we are siblings, so... I think maybe we changed um, to mention that in our, in our theme uh, since we had this guest for today, um, since we had him on last year. <laughs> I, was, yeah. I, I noticed that. Just because oh, we yeah, like to make you... people aware that we're siblings. Right, yeah. We were both reviewed the last time we had our, our guest that's coming up today on our show. It was pretty much just over a year ago, back in January of 2022, that this guest was on. And then he was actually on for the first time, Care, three years ago. Pretty much to the day, it was February 17th, 2020, that today's guest joined us on Outlook for the first time. So it's great to have Ben Fulton back on Outlook today. Welcome, Ben, to the show. Hi, Brian, Kerry. Yes, thanks for inviting me back to the show. It's been great um, being on your show so many times and keeping your listeners informed of all the advocacy work that I've been engaging with. Yes, for sure. I mean, all the work that you do as a lawyer since um, 2019 when you uh, started it all and all through the pandemic. Uh, but all the work that you do is why we like to highlight that because, you know, we don't know a lot about the law here and uh, we're not experts on this show and so we like to have people such as yourself on who can talk to us about some of these things and specifically some of the things you do so thank you yeah it's great that we have a a lawyer that we can uh, jump to on this show for any sort of uh, advice or just knowledge on on these topics and the the fact that you know like a lot of our guests this lawyer so happens to to also be blind which you know as as we emphasize on this show a lot of the times that's just a characteristic that's just one part of who we are but of course it's always important for, for anyone to have role models, especially people who are of, of minorities that maybe don't see enough people out there doing things that they might want to do. So it's really great to see Ben practicing law as a, as a blind lawyer. And uh, it's, just, it's, it's always great to have Ben on the show. So it's, it's, it's awesome to have uh, him on again today for, for the third time in, uh, in as many years on, on Outlook. But Brian, you were saying the first time we had Ben on was 2020, right before COVID spread around the world. and uh, at that time, Ben came on to tell us his story of discrimination and an arrest with his guide dog uh, while out on a trip out west. And it just made me think of a, our guest that we had on the show here two weeks ago, Kim Kilpatrick. Uh, as we told you when she was on the show, uh, she's an Ottawa storyteller, uh, but she goes around the, the, the country when she can, and she's in Calgary right now doing a show about her guide dog and just explaining to people who come what guide dogs are all about. And I know Ben has experience with guide dogs as well, obviously. And so uh, it just made me think of that because while she's in the city, I don't know if Ben, if you've seen this yet, but while she's in the city um, this last few weeks, she's been taking a lot of cabs. Uh, 
she was refused a, a, a ride with her other guy dog by a cab, a, a cab driver there in Calgary. And the news, um, the CBC and the, I think Calgary Herald picked it up. And I guess the driver even insisted at one point that she could just put her dog in the trunk. <laughs> so this is the Jeez. kind of stuff we're still dealing with. Um, but Ben, I don't, do you want to tell us a bit about um, this, the guide dog stuff you've been through? Just a quick summary. And then, like you said, that got resolved and you're taking it as a win. So can you give us a bit of an update on that before we get to what you're dealing, doing with um, housing discrimination? Absolutely, yes. And I, I have heard of the uh, infamous uh, guide dog in the trunk case. I'm not sure if it's the only incident or if there are others out there. But certainly that that's appalling. And um, yeah, I've been refused rides on occasion. Um, and depending on how the company deals with it, you know, the results can be to varying degrees of satisfaction. Um, it can be really hard to proceed with a case like that. Um, you have to really show that the company um, really isn't taking the necessary measures to inform their drivers that they're being negligent in in their duties. So um, one of the cases I had involving Uber, um, there was disciplinary action sort of taken by Uber against that employee and it sort of ended there. And, you know, just with the way everything's set up, um, that, that was sort of the end of that. But the other guide dog case um, that I originally came on the show talking about uh, did happen in 2019. Um, as you mentioned, that was just at the same time I was uh, becoming a lawyer. Um, it was actually within two weeks of uh, being called to the bar when I was at a uh, Shell gas station with my guide dog. And we were um, basically just shot, uh, mixing up a coffee at the counter. And the clerk there said I wasn't allowed to be there with my guide dog. And I told them that because it's a guide dog, the laws in Canada state that I am allowed to be there with my guide dog. And the clerk said that wasn't what his manager had said and you know, became very insistent. And I was standing my ground saying, I'm not gonna leave the store because I don't have to leave the store. And if you really want to challenge the law, then you should call the police. Well, I mean, to be specific, he asked me if I wanted him to call the police. And I said that he should because, again, I feel the police are there to enforce the law. And when there's a question and people feel that that's what they would like to do, I feel that should be available to anybody. Absolutely. Call emergency services. Everyone has the right to do that. So I was in the store, standing at the counter, trying to get service when the police showed up. There were two officers. There was a male and a female officer. And the female officer said, why don't we go outside and talk about this? And I answered her question and I said, because I'm standing at the counter trying to get service. The officer repeated her question saying, why don't we go outside and talk about this? And I told the officer, I just told you the reason I don't wanna go outside and talk about this. I am standing at the counter trying to get service. At that point, the male officer arrested me for mischief. The whole interaction was less than 30 seconds between the time the officers came in the store, asked me my questions, and had me in handcuffs. 
They didn't take the time to hear my side of the story at all. I was released after being held in the police car for about 30 minutes. We continued on with the rest of our vacation because this was a celebration of me getting called to the bar. Mm -hmm. After returning from my vacation, I filed a complaint with the BC Human Rights Commission and they have no jurisdiction over the RCMP. They could handle the matter with Shell, but I had to file another complaint with the Canada Human Rights Commission to deal with the RCMP. The whole matter took well over a year. It was actually December of 2021 by time it was resolved. And I am pleased to report that we resolved it satisfactorily through a process known as mediation. This is where the parties come together to negotiate in the presence of a third party neutral that can facilitate the discussion, but does not issue any binding decisions. The whole process remains voluntary and confidential throughout. Following the mediation, I was able to get training for the Shell employees and the RCMP to be mandated. There was a bulletin that went out informing all RCMP members of the state of the law and their duties. And you can read those letters on my website at benlaw.ca. So I was very happy with the resolution that we were able to achieve through mediation. And I felt in the end, it was a really positive outcome to what was not really a very great situation. Well, that, that's, that's awesome news, though, that at least that was resolved through mediation. And again, I'm obviously a, a novice when it comes to this stuff. I'm not overly familiar with a lot of this stuff, but um, I would think, you know, oftentimes you hear about a cash settlement with things where, you know, that's, that's something, but I like to see that there's actual action taking place in this case where there was training done for the Shell employees. So there was more, more action taking place rather than just giving cash for people to be quiet kind of thing. And, and uh, so I, I am really happy to hear this, this resolution that, that, that took place. And indeed, and that's one of my reasons for engaging with the mediation process, because it allows for more creative solutions, and you can get those kinds of resolutions, as opposed to when you go forward with the formal hearing, a lot of times the uh, tribunal is basically bound by making a, a cash settlement. You know, they can make it about dollars and cents, but they can't uh, order specific performance. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like I said with our guest, our recent guest, Kim, it's like the, the cab company suspended that driver. Uh, and her idea is that all the cab companies should be coming to her show to learn. And so that's what you're saying. It's better than throwing money at a problem. It doesn't uh, touch enough of the RCMP and, and, law and, and police services who need to learn how to better handle this stuff. And that's why I like to talk about ways of de-escalating situations, because when the cops can get there, uh, you know, understanding why that happened in that, in that instance, the, the police often come in and just make things a whole lot more complicated. But in the moment, what else do you think to do so that you and, you know, the store owner don't all of a sudden get into a, some sort of tussle? So, yeah, that was a tough situation. And, uh, you know, thank you for sharing all of that with us and our listeners. Um, yeah, well, we've definitely talked about that story now. This is the, the, third, the third episode we're talking about it, but I just think it is such an important thing that we want to stop in, in society. So I, I don't think we can talk about it really enough to, to get it through to people. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad that we are bringing it up again and that it was a positive outcome. And, and 
And I guess one word of advice that I might offer to the listeners in terms of this kind of a situation is that, you know, it might be better for the person with a guide dog to be the one making that call to the police. I, I think still to this day, the, the police really respond um, primarily to the person making the call. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that plays a big role in how people uh, get treated uh, when, when the police do arrive. Right. So you mean if you if you had made the call yourself instead of when the when the store clerk made the call or whoever in the store did, that was sort of then the interactions between him and the cops rather than you and the cops at that point. Um, so maybe it would have been a bit of a different uh, reaction if, if you had been the one to call. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to say. Uh, it's hard but, to say. Yeah. You know, I, I say that it, it might have made a difference. Right. Like anything. L- live and learn and you know, hopefully you don't have to deal with this again. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's why I'm offering it as, as words of advice, uh, you know, for right. anybody finding themselves in a similar situation. To be a little more proactive. Um, which is kind of, I guess, my next uh, case I, I can talk about. Um, or I've been fairly proactive in that. Yes, that would be great to, to move on to that. And, you know, it's nice to start off kind of on a positive, well, negative into positive note where... Bad situation, but it all kind of worked out. And now you have, you have another one uh, dealing with housing discrimination that we touched on a little bit in 2020 and then in greater detail last year. And uh, yes, uh, an update on that would be, would be great. Absolutely. And, and that's, this case is still in the um, ongoing stage. There's actually a hearing that is set uh, for May of this year. It's a multiple day hearing. I believe there's uh, 14 days set aside plus some reserve days. Um, So they are taking this very seriously uh, because it involves challenging a part of the um, Ontario Human Rights Code um, using the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So the Charter of Rights and Freedoms supersedes um, provincial legislation. And in this case, there's a part of the Human Rights Code that we say violates the Charter. And I'll try to walk the listeners through this um, best I can. Now, the Human Rights Code, for the most part, is a really great piece of legislation because it gives people protections they would not otherwise have. It guarantees everyone the right to be free from discrimination when they're out shopping for goods, when they're out getting a taxi, or when they're looking for an apartment or a place to live. This is uh, actually, I think, covered in Section 2 of the Ontario Human Rights Code, which is, gives people that protection with respect to accommodations, uh, a living place. But then there's a part of the code that we don't like, and that's Section 21 sub 1 of the uh, Ontario Human Rights Code that says that that right to uh, freedom from discrimination when looking for housing is not infringed if the landlord shares a kitchen or a bathroom. So that's saying when a landlord advertises a place, a room to rent on Kijiji or Craigslist or wherever they choose to post it, and this is a room in their house and they're sharing a kitchen or a bathroom, or it's a room in their sister's house and or a family member of the landlord is sharing a kitchen or a bathroom. And it can be one or the other. It could be there's a basement suite and you have to come upstairs and use the kitchen. Um, that would make it so that your rights under the Human Rights Code are no longer protected. So when you show up to look at this room, because you're interested in renting and you know being a law-abiding tenant, 
the landlord can refuse to rent to you because of your race, because of your sex, because of your gender, ethnicity, um, religious beliefs, or because you're disabled. And they can even tell you to your face, they don't want to rent to you because you're blind, because you're black, because you're Muslim. It doesn't matter. They can tell that to your face. Look, I just don't want to rent to Jewish people, period. And they can legally get away with that. So we're trying to change that because we don't think that's right, that someone can put an ad on Kijiji, you know, room to rent. This is now available to presumably the entire population of Ontario. Anyone who wants to live in Toronto can come down and rent this room and start living there unless the landlord doesn't like their race or unless the landlord doesn't like the fact that they have a disability. And it happened to me personally when I was looking for a place to rent near the university. I had a number of landlords tell me they didn't want to rent to me because I was blind. And when I had it in text, in black and white, that the reason I was being denied accommodation was because of my disability. I took it to the Human Rights Tribunal. And I was told that because of Section 21, Sub 1, there wasn't anything I could do about it. So I decided to do something about Section 21, Sub 1. And that's what we're doing in May. We're working to get it struck down. There's going to be a hearing to proceed at the tribunal where they will determine the constitutional validity of that provision. And if we're successful there, I'd like to take this all the way to the Divisional Court of Ontario and have them strike it down completely, make an official judicial declaration that this provision is of no force and effect. And that is our goal, the remedy we are seeking. Wow, yeah. It's so unfortunate. We talk about disability as being one of those things that all these misconceptions lead to this kind of attitude. but. The fact that these things are, they can be said just freely. It's like, let's reveal our racism, reveal our ableism, and we there's no one stopping us, and we can say however we feel. And so the fact that you got multiple interactions like that in just trying to find housing, uh, it's great, like we say, when someone like yourself has this background and loss and this experience, so you can challenge it because there's so many people that just get overwhelmed by that process. And, um, you know, I'm sure you have your moments as well when it's overwhelming. And these things have to go through the channels, the usual channels to be legal, <laughs> obviously to do things legally. And uh, so, yeah, last time we spoke to you, uh, you were looking for other people to share their experiences with being denied shared accommodations um, for disability or anything else. Uh, including putting this notice up on the Canadian Federation of the Blinds website. Um, how has how has that been in the last year or so? Uh, is there anything you want to say about that? Well, I could say we're still looking for anybody to come forward and share their personal experiences. Uh, I've got third-hand information. You know, people have told me that they've heard about this happening to other people. You know. I've met with a few people in different institutions that tell me they've had clients disclose that to them. But of course, because of the nature of, you know, confidentiality, um, it's really up to those people to reach out. And it's a very daunting process uh, to go forward with this kind of legislation. I mean, 
this has now been in the works since 2019, since about the same time as the guide dog case started. And it's still ongoing. So I actually haven't had too many people step forward at this point, uh, but I can certainly understand the reluctance. Um, you know, fighting these kinds of battles takes a lot of uh, fortitude. So yeah, I feel very strongly they should be fought, but I certainly understand that, you know, people have a lot of other commitments that are keeping them busy and, you know, may not have the, you know, time to, you know, step forward or they may fear other reprisals. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons people, you know, don't come forward. So well, it's, it's tough. It's like, it's what we were talking about when we did have you on last year about, you know, we promoted this survey for the first time and people can still find it at cfb.ca on the homepage. There is a link to click to go to this survey if you have ever experienced any discrimination based on race, sex, disability, any of these areas, you, you can fill this out. And it, 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 you know, it comes down to, again, like we talked about, I mean, even in your experience, you didn't go into as much detail today. People can listen to the episode from a year ago, which we'll share in the notes for the show to get the full details. But, you know, this was something that you experienced multiple times throughout your, your university studies. But yet, you know, the, the first year you, you were sort of asked to sign a, it was a release form or something to, to, in case you fell down the stairs or something silly like that. Like, so th this was sort of an ongoing thing. And at first you're almost not even sure you just need a place. You don't know if it is discrimination. Like, and so I think, like you say, people aren't always totally sure. Um, it is sort of a, a thing to have to open up to, to really come out with this stuff. And people do get busy with lives. And it's also the, the promotion of this stuff is it's hard to get the word out that you are looking for these accounts. But yet, if this has happened to other people, which I'm, I'm assuming it must have, you know, it would it always is helpful for the case to have even, you know, even one or two people that have also experienced this just to get that uh, extra support. So people can, of course, still still reach out uh, anytime and, and fill that out or just reach out to Ben. Uh, I'm sure you would just, you know, take an email or a call. People can contact you through benlaw.ca. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I was saying, this misconceptions out in the world that blind people don't use the stairs, that it's, that it's dangerous every time we, we are around them. You know, as Brian said last year on the show, is that uh, a lot of people have balance issues, so there are valid reasons why stairs can be a bit um, of, a, of a challenge for certain people, but it's specifically blindness as it stands on its own. Uh, the misconception is, you know, we get that all the time when we're out and about, oh, you need the elevator, right? Oh, are you going to be okay on the stairs? And you appreciate if they ask, but really that's a misconception that is floating around all the, all the time out there. Um, but like you said, you did sign that one and because you just wanted to have a place to live. The thing is, blind people are trying to pull our way out of the low expectations we, we experience, right? And to do that, we have to start being involved in our communities and in our, in our country. And we want to start by getting more blind people working and remove some of those barriers. So when someone such as yourself is trying to, you know, get through law school, become a lawyer and do some of this important work, the, you know, you need a place to stay to study while you're doing this stuff like that. And so it's just, it, it's a, a layered thing. And if one domino falls, they all fall and we're all trying to build our, each other up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, this kind of discrimination, it, it shouldn't be allowed. You know, it just shouldn't be, people shouldn't be able to post an ad. 
on on Craigslist in, unless they're really willing to open that space to the public. Well, that, that was the discussion that, that we really got into last year when we had you on. And it's the fact of that we sort of referring to this, this whole fact, fact that it is somebody's home, a, a quote unquote, their castle or their, their place where they, that's how this sort of, um, this contradiction got through in the, in the law, in the sense that people are seeing it slightly differently because it's your private home. But yet, you know, your point, and, and I completely agree, is the fact that nobody's forcing you to, to put your home up for rent for somebody to, to live in a room in your house. That's your choice. And it's, it makes me kind of think, like, I don't know how similar it is, but sort of reminds me of Uber or cabs refusing a dog. It's like, you're in this business to work with the public and, you know, inviting public into your private vehicle or house or whatever it is. You, you, you know, to be able to discriminate like that you know, some people might say, oh, it's my right. I can choose. But when you, be, when, you, when you put yourself out publicly like that, I don't, I think it's absolutely disgusting to, to be able to, to have this in, in the current, uh, the law and to be able to, you know, refuse somebody based on any of these um, groups. That's right. That's right. And I think we talked about it a little bit last time as well. The, uh, the state in New Brunswick, where people... This exception um, exists in their human rights code as well, but it's specifically mentioned in that exception that not only does the landlord have to share the kitchen or bathroom, but the place cannot be advertised. So, you know, this would allow landlords who are interested in, you know, renting out their room, a room in their place you know, to, to friends or family, you know, in really small areas, and they want to be very, very selective about it. Um, they, they still have that right in New Brunswick, but they can't advertise. So they can't put it on Kijiji or Craigslist because then, they've, then they have entered that public sphere. Right. So that's an interesting uh, change of legislation that might be, you know, bringing to the tribunal's attention um, because there will be arguments on the other side that will be made. Uh, mostly by the ministry uh, for the attorney general who will be, you know, um, advocating for the constitutional validity of this provision. And we, we haven't seen their arguments yet. Uh, we'll have about a month uh, of looking at their arguments before we're in the hearing. So uh, we're going to be moving very quickly on that. I've got a couple of uh, student researchers uh, from Osgood lined up to work with us on that. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we're going to have to respond to those arguments. And depending on how the tribunal member, you know, interprets the legislation and finds favor with what arguments, you know, we may not get the remedy that we'd like. There may be some kind of concession between an absolute striking down of the provision and a reading down or a reading in or, or some other remedy. So there might be somewhere in between, you know, leaving the provision stand completely intact and striking it down absolutely. Right, not like right. an all or, no all or nothing sort of situation, more somewhere in the middle, somewhere to some degree. Right, and that really will be up to the tribunal. Right, and we'll definitely be sure to have you on again, and hopefully, you know, like the guide dog situation, we can come back uh, in a year's time or, you know, whenever it happens to be with, uh, with another positive solution in, in, this, in this case. So thanks everyone for tuning in today. You're listening to Outlook here on Radio Western. We're speaking with Ben Fulton, a lawyer based out of Mississauga. 
Ontario. You can find Ben online, Ben Law Legal Services at benlaw.ca. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be right back after this. Outlook. Radio Western. Welcome back. You're listening to Outlook this morning on Family Day. It's airing on Family Day originally, and then as a podcast, we are Outlook on Radio Western 94.9, and you can find us on all podcast services. And today we are speaking with lawyer Ben Fulton, and it says here uh, on your website, actually, it says a blind crime fighting advocate promoting justice, fairness, and equality. And I was like, am I reading about Ben, or am I reading about Batman here? Like, I, lo- I love how it's worded um, because, like you say, you- you're trying to make a difference as a lawyer and use um, your gifts and your also lived experience to actually make changes. But thanks again, Ben, for coming on and talking to us about all the things you've um, been involved in. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Carrie. And if you read a little farther down in the page uh, for the listeners, um, yeah. you see where I talk about my crime fighting approach. Uh, that engages in the prevention of crime through restorative justice measures, where I basically seek to engage with uh, first offenders, people with minor criminal records, and steer them into towards uh, paths that involve uh, less engagement with the law. And, you know, there's been a lot of research supporting that these diversions uh, presented to um, first offenders, people with minor criminal records, makes a drastic um, difference um, in, in the lives of that individual and, and their ongoing um, engagement with the law. So, so it does result in um, less crime overall, but through a sort of unique perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, the, the overall approach that, that you do take is, um, is really important, I think. And I, was, I really like how in-depth the definitions are on, on your website for your, the practice areas that you work work in primarily that are arbitration and alternative dispute resolution, mediation, criminal and diversion for criminal offenses. Um, so yeah, these, these areas are just are definitely a, 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 a good way of going about these things to prevent, you know, to keep things, you know, a little bit more civil and, and instead of, you know, getting into the law as much as, as sometimes people end up doing. And then that can have uh, sometimes more negative effects in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, community-based approaches are really good and uh, should be used when and where possible. Yes, and that's what I like about it. It's not such a punish, punitive system, the, the, the legal system, the criminal justice system, police system in this country. As you, you said before the break, your incident in a shell with the police and with the owner of, of the gas station dealing, you know, to get some changes made, some materials sent to RCMP and to get them uh, educated more. But as far as this stuff that's a restorative justice for criminal people who are criminalized, who that can impact the rest of their lives. And so the way you do that is great. And you really do illustrate that nicely on your website. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's a model of my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we were talking before the break about this latest situation that you are gave us an update about, and uh, that is the shared accommodations and housing discrimination. You know, housing is a human right. Uh, a roof over your head, a dry place, home, like someone Brian said, your castle. 
all those things, it, you know, housing is a human right and it impacts everything else. And of course, in Canada right now, we're dealing with the serious housage, housing shortage and for affordable housing and not being able to keep up with the pace needed to house everybody in the country. Uh, so this is a time when this is in the news a lot. Um, would you just give us a bit of a bit more background uh, in the second half here for our listeners about some of the situations you were in and what that was like for you when you were just trying to focus on school, some of the discrimination you did face, even though we discussed it's hard to know for certain people at first, is this really happening? What are my rights? You knew that more than most people. Yeah, well, as Brian mentioned, uh, the first landlord that I uh, was able to rent from um, in first year university or law school was um, basically basically he asked me to sign a waiver um, of my legal rights to to sue him if I injured myself or caused any damage um, which I signed because I, I wasn't too concerned about it um, and I didn't need a place to live um, and then in the second year um, the, the housing search renewed and this time the landlord uh who i met with um called me back uh, you know within an hour of taking my um first and last month's rent and wanted to refund it because he wasn't so sure about renting to somebody who was blind cold feet too late yeah and that's basically what i said like look you know i'm i'm i'm, I'm not going to take the money back i need a place and and the funny thing is, I, I told this man that uh, you know it was discrimination, and and we had a bit of a conversation because uh, he didn't want to be you know uh, accused of being discriminating. And look, but but no, this is and and if you can't rent to me, then where am I going to rent? And and everybody's telling me that they don't want to rent to me. Like, and the funny thing is, by the end of the two months that I was there, um, because I was only there actually for um, the remainder of the semester, it had taken me so long to actually find a place um, that, you know, after two months, the semester was over. Um, and so I ended up moving because I was going to another place uh, for the second semester, um, working downtown in a placement. But anyways, he actually, um, he actually said I was one of the best tenants he'd ever had. He, uh, he asked if, you know, I ever needed a reference, uh, you know, to just ask him and he'd give me a positive reference. So I, I was glad that I was able to really change um, his attitudes and beliefs around blindness. And uh, then in third year, I, I was looking for a place. And again, that same pattern of people not wanting to rent to me. And it was happening so much that I started telling landlords before I came to look at the place that I was blind. And that's how the text conversation happened between me and this one landlord. You know, we'd been texting back and forth. You know, we were getting to the point where, okay, I can come and look at the place. Uh, we, we were settling on a date. And I just decided, okay, I'm going to, you know, put in this text message that I'm blind because I don't want to show up there and have, you know, the same situation happen again. And yeah, I got a message back saying, you know, they didn't want to rent to me because I was blind. And that was right in the text message. So I felt like, okay, that was, you know, pretty concrete evidence. Yeah, concrete proof right there of what's, what's going on. But even as concrete as it is, if it's not against the law. Right, there's still that loophole, <laughs> loophole right, that we yeah, talked about earlier. It, it, the, the, the legislation says they're allowed to do that. Yeah. 
And like you say, with, but like you say, with the experience in your second year, you actually turned that into a, a good experience and you became friendly or friends with that landlord. And you were able to have a dialogue about like, what is bringing, what is causing that? They don't want to rent to you. They had cold feet. It's, it's, know, based, um, it's based in fear or it's based in like total ableism and being a jerk. Like it's. But it, it also really goes to show how how quickly perceptions are like you know it's sort of that um, first first perception of some someone that you get just by meeting someone and the these you know these stereotypes that are out there in society and, and people's fear of this stuff it really goes to show that if if you don't just jump on something right away with a with a conclusion and you give someone a chance or you get to know somebody how how differently that can that can change your your opinion on something and that's why these techniques that we talked about earlier for 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 dealing with um with any anything in the, based based in the law it's like having these other approaches to really sort of de-escalate the situations are so important and it is nice to see that you were able to you know make make a connection with with this landlord at the time and, and sort of change change their mind yeah yeah what a rather interesting story to come out of this is um in the upstairs washroom um the sink um well basically i was uh turning on, well, I, I'd been washing my hands and, and I went to turn off the water. The, uh, the faucet, basically the hand, um, tap sort of broke in such a way that the, that the hot water kept running. Mm. And, and, you know, it was just spinning kind of freewheeling and it wouldn't stop running. Um, so I went under the sink to, you know, the supply valve to, you know, shut the water off there. So I was able to get the water off at least. And then I called the landlord, you know, to let him know what was going on. And I think he was really amazed, really impressed somehow that, you know, I'd, I'd been able to shut off the supply valve, you know, because he, he kept, you know, he was very concerned he was going to have to come over, like the, the, the water was just running and running and running. I'm like, no, 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 I turned it off. Like, and I, I explained to him how I shut off the supply valve and like the, the water's not running, but. You know, I'm just letting you know the sink's broken and, you know, you might have to fix it before it works properly again, you know. Right. But I think uh, just that level of understanding, uh, you know, it was just basic rudimentary plumbing. And I, I was able to, you know, again, sort of change some of those misconceptions around blindness. Right. Again, the assumption right away is like, oh, there's a problem there. You haven't done anything to, to be able to try to start solving it. You need me for everything when really... You had done that, and that was sort of just the instant um, assumption that that this person made at the time. And you know, it's again all these things that we encounter so often as, as people who happen to be blind, and it's just it's something that it's frustrating. But we're you know we're changing people's you know perspectives day by day, so it's a it's an ongoing thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah basically, I just taken it down from being an emergency situation with you know water constantly running to something that just kind of needed fixing when you get around. You to can, it. yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, you were reporting what you normally would to a landlord if you're staying in their property, and they don't rush home to to baby every any anybody who's staying in their housing who has that problem. If if you can discuss wh what the situation is, but for them to automatically assume that you're totally helpless and you need them to rush right over, that's one of the reasons why people might be hesitant to 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 rent to to a blind person, thinking that they have to take care of them every minute, and and that's not what it's about at all. So. Nice. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that story. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that one. And thanks for, again for the update on uh, the, the housing discrimination case, of course, and those a bit more of those details on the discrimination that you did face. Because I do think for, for listeners out there and people that 
you know, maybe have experienced it and haven't shared yet uh, through the survey at cfb.ca or just, you know, having that personal story attached to it, I think, you know, really connects with people more emotionally than just just outlining the the proceedings afterwards. So I think sharing that again um, is is quite helpful. And so, yeah, I don't know. Is there anything else specific you want to you want to mention about it? Of course, the uh, the hearing coming up in May, um, I have. I'm not sure if that's an open hearing for anyone to check out or if it's that's a closed closed event. Well, I, I would say, well, you know, there is an open court principle. So I think presumably um, that link should be open for people to join. Um, of course, you know, out of respect for the tribunal and the proceedings, everyone should, you know, any, every observer should basically keep their camera off and their um, audio muted. And uh, it's really important for people to understand, you know, keeping your camera off, um, it really does affect bandwidth. Yeah. Um, when we have lots of observers joining and people aren't turning their cameras off, um, really just bog down the proceedings. And, you know, sometimes the host can go around and turn people's cameras off, but that's just more work for the host. Like, it's basically just etiquette, right? You know, yeah, exactly. By now should know uh, Zoom etiquette and, you know, just ask people to be respectful of that. For sure. Yeah, it was just funny through the whole pandemic seeing hearings move online to Zoom and hearing how that all plays out. And yeah, like people's backgrounds would would be, their camera would be on in a background they'd have up or something behind them. It would embarrass them or <laughs> it caught people doing all kinds of things. So it was weird to bring something as as sort of serious as a, as a hearing for something like you know into everybody's houses like that. But it does open up doors as well that uh, make it easy for others to to get involved in something even if they can't be there in person or whatever right well we're speaking today again with ben fulton and he is a lawyer in gta and you can find him online uh, by going to benlaw.ca and uh, see the kind of work that you do for others and the kind of thing you're doing for yourself um, to and for all of us to make canada better uh, because you say it needs to be laws and it used to be legislation alongside community support and better restorative practices in law and in cr the criminal justice system. And like your incident with your landlord where, uh, you know, he wanted you to sign that thing in the one year. It's the thing about, oh, if they fall and then they're going to sue me. This whole thing that we, we deal with these situations by suing and that that's the first first way of dealing it you jump right to that it's the same thing as what i'm saying about restorative justice and in in these serious arenas where we do have to have laws and and some you know rules to things in society sometimes that can run amok and so there are ways uh to, to work with that and that's what you do and uh, so everybody yeah, again if you want to learn more about ben you can go to benlaw.ca yeah and i thought i would just um ask then a little bit about so Aside from these two, these two um, big cases that you've been involved with um, personally, how how has your practice been going otherwise? Of, of course, you know it's it's been just over three years now. I think you've kind of had it set up, and obviously starting pretty much right when COVID hit. So adjusting to have having to do all that adjustment uh, at the time, and then now with things opening up again, I don't know if 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 things are you know you are going in more often, or if you're still doing most things virtually. Just kind of a little bit of an update on your practice in general. And then I just think also for our listeners, 
you know, the fact that you, that you you are blind, I think, is something that, you know, obviously we don't focus on in this show all the time because we want to make everyone feel comfortable and fit in and that we're all just coming from different um, perspectives, but yet we all can do just, you know, almost all the same things. But was is, is being a lawyer something you've always kind of thought about doing? Sort of what was your sort of history with that? And then a little bit about the how that ties in with the blindness, like, any sort of accommodations you've had to make or I, I don't know, just sort of how the process has worked for you overall. And then, you know, maybe some, some positives about the experience as well, but just a little bit of an update on, on the practice overall. Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, just my practice in general, is going fairly well. Things are returning to in person. I just conducted a three day trial in person in January. Uh, the decision for that will be out in March. Um, that's of course, you know, representing a client. Uh, you know, a lot of my litigation is not about me. Um, yes, which is good. Um, Gotta pay yeah, the bills. And, and and to you know, I'll let the listeners know a bit about my housing case. I'm actually working with the Canada Center for Human Rights (CCHR) and a um, constitutional lawyer by the name of Shibal Siddiqui, who's actually you know counsel of record for that hearing. Um, because there's the old adage that a lawyer who represents himself has a fool for a client. Mm-hmm. So, you nice. know, I, I'm not the only lawyer at that table. Uh, in fact, I will be taking a back seat to other more prominent, more um, seasoned professionals. So uh, we got the big guns going on that one for sure. Um, myself, I have recently been added to the duty council roster for Brampton and the GTA. Uh, so those are the two areas that I practice in primarily. And uh, duty counsel is basically an on-call criminal lawyer who is in court for anybody who um, is making a first appearance, uh, who may need bail, who uh, doesn't otherwise have a lawyer, cannot afford a lawyer, um, is in need of basically stopgap emergency legal advice. Um, there are limits to what a duty counsel can do. Uh, for instance, uh, Representing a client as duty counsel, I would not be able to run a trial for that client. And if I've, you know, represented a client as duty counsel and the matter, say, needs to proceed to trial, there, there would then have to be another lawyer uh, who would take that matter to trial. Or I might be able to get, you know, special permission from the law society to do it. But there has to be kind of some exceptional circumstances like you know, there aren't any other lawyers available. This person really needs representation. You know, those kinds of concerns. Um, so there, there are different roles, and, you know, it's important to keep them separate. And uh, that's, um, you know, sort of a very exciting recent development uh, for my practice. And um, in terms of blindness as relates to my overall career, I guess I originally wanted to be a race car driver. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I wanted to be a lawyer all the way through high school and university. It, it was really uh, where I set my sights, um, you know, to make these kinds of changes, to improve the lives of individuals, to implement restorative justice. So uh, that's, that's been an aspiration for quite a long time. And, you know, of course, I needed accommodations throughout law school, uh, you know, to get my material. Um, digitized and you know that frequently took uh, a long time because of the process um like it couldn't just be 
rendered like they weren't born accessible so they'd have to be you know scanned in and you know ocr by somebody in the library and so you know there were times when i had you know textbooks coming like months into the semester um in some cases weeks before the final exam um hmm. and you know it was a little stressful but i got through and uh in my practice uh i spent some time um establishing like an accommodation um process i guess i call it with the ministry of the attorney general uh you know my first couple of cases they really didn't know what to do to make the um material accessible uh it goes to a third party vendor that you know makes the material accessible and even then they had to communicate with me a little back and forth about my needs because you know some of the initial disclosure uh even if after it had come back from the vendor was being presented in tables and charts that were difficult to follow maybe not technically inaccessible but just you know for ease of access and you know i figure you know establishing this relationship with the company letting them know my needs so when they make it it's you know something that i can easily work with like they're already taking the time to make it accessible they might as well make it optimally accessible um you know because it's not going to take them that much time to do it if they get it right the first time and it yeah, saves me a lot of time so that's, that's something we always focus on with accessibility is you know it's it's so much better to to build it in from the beginning and so it's great that you do have the people there helping yeah. out with that and being open to that yeah and so now that that's been established it's it's a relatively straightforward process um when dealing with a new crown or a new crown office uh i can just have them contact the uh, my my central office which is brampton and they they know the process and what steps need to be taken um so that's a little more seamless now right and and this is the tricky thing about talking about this stuff is that we do say we want to just be a part of the rest of society and that includes uh employment and work life and uh there are already so many things a lawyer must do to become a lawyer in the first place and so i can imagine it's a heavy workload to get where you got here and but yet we want to talk about how this stuff impacts blindness because like we said before the misconceptions the world has about the capabilities of blind people and their low expectations i, I don't know if there's any particular experiences that have jumped out to you that you want to share just about how how you've been taken been able to be taken seriously as a lawyer other than just doing the work and showing what you've got uh, I don't know if there have been things you've encountered or it's just it's a tricky fine line we find here about talking about these issues because they do happen and also different people are not you know not as comfortable with revealing all that stuff or sharing what they have experienced and certain things like you said maybe in the moment happen and they're hard but years later you don't even think about that anymore so I don't know where you stand in in, in the middle of that or um, well, I, I can say that uh, it, it was a bit of a struggle for me to find uh, my articles. I, I you know, um, was basically, I received my article placement um, basically at the very end of uh, third year law school, um, which is a fair bit behind the majority. Um, like there are other students that are, you know, 
not able to find articles for the first year. Um, so I'm not the only one in that camp. But, you know, with any of this, you know, you're always questioning, like, is this as a result of my disability? You know, some of those earlier experiences uh, in looking for work, um, post articles, um, and I, you know, applied for a number of positions and, you know, got a few interviews. But again, you know, when things don't work out, is that because of my blindness? Are there other factors? It, it's hard to say. There were a couple times I certainly had a feeling that it was disability related, but never with enough, you know, conviction that I felt like I could really tangibly do anything about it. So, you know, some of these issues, like you said, they're hard to discuss. Um, you know, they could be a little uncomfortable because you don't really know. And then it, you start, I mean, to be honest, right? To be honest, it, it starts making questioning your competence. Like, you know, well, is it because of my blindness or, or are there other things, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, and so you, you question those things and you, you might not want to disclose that because of your own confidence, right? Like it might undermine your confidence to be open and discuss that. Um, you know, many lawyers talk about feelings of insecurity that are very common in the first uh, couple of years of practice. But when these people are talking about this, it's always in these kind of vague third party, like people aren't putting their hands up and saying, oh, yeah, I'm totally insecure. Right. <laughs> you know, it's that like, personal talk, touch on it that it's it's, but like it's in, an, in an abstract sort of way. You know, it's like when, when people talk about like. Oh, can I tell you about about my friend's situation? You know, like, right. you know, <laughs> you know. So, like, yeah. The, I mean, I I certainly I'll admit that I have some of those feelings of insecurity. That's very human. That's very normal. It's very natural. And yeah, it does make you kind of question other issues and and what is disability related and what's not. Yeah, I think yeah. you make some really great points there, and it it is such a such blurred line sometimes with this. And it's the same with the, the the housing stuff. Originally, you just want a place to live. You don't know, is this that? But then once you have the proof of a text message specifically saying, I, I can't rent to you because you're blind, then you have that that proof. And, and it, it is such a blurred thing. And it's also like what Carrie was touching on about, of course, we all as people just want to fit in. We don't want to stand out. But yet celebrating the blindness in some ways as well to really kind of make note that for other blind people who are coming up that might want, consider being a lawyer to know that there's other blind lawyers out there. Whereas if we just want to try to fit in and don't put that out there at all, you know, then people aren't as likely to find that connection or, or to know that. So oh, certainly. And to let your listeners know, there is not just one or two, there is a <laughs> right. Canadian association of blind and visually impaired lawyers. What? No. Yes. And uh, you, you can uh, join our mailing list. Just contact me directly. And I think we've got like 15, 16 names. And that's not just blind lawyers, but that's Canadian blind lawyers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. So Specific if you want to do, talk to them about, there's, there's another, there's, um, you know, the National Federation of the Blind. They have a mailing list. I, I don't know. They, I think they've got dozens of lawyers uh, from the United States. But this is, you know, very specifically addressing issues more related to Canada. So. Yeah, no, that's so great. I'm glad you shared that as well. And uh, always learn so much when, when Ben Fulton joins us on Outlook. Of course, you can learn more at Ben Law Legal Services, benlaw.ca. 
And uh, best of luck with, with the hearing coming up in May. We'll definitely keep our listeners posted. Okay, well, uh, thanks, Brian and Carrie, for having me on. Um, have a wonderful family day, and I look forward to keeping you updated. Us too, thank you. Send us an email. Outlook on RadioWestern at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.